Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. When it comes to Shakespeare's personal biography and his inner life, you'll find that there's a certain paucity of evidence. There's enough for people to be able to theorize, of course. That's why some people suggest it wasn't even he who wrote the plays, or others suggest that he was a Catholic. There's even less, they'll say, to go on when it comes to his wife, the woman we call Anne Hathaway. But what if Shakespeare gave us a really big clue? What if he signposted us to an event that radically metamorphosed his world? What if he named his most famous, most acclaimed play after his son, who died at the age of eleven? Hamlet, Hamlet. It's just one letter different. It has been hiding there in plain sight. In 2020, today's guest Maggie O'Farrell won the Women's Prize for Fiction with her novel exploring this very question. It's a work of great and intense beauty that imagines the role of Shakespeare's wife in his life, the role of women in society, the devastation left by epidemic disease, and the pain of losing a child. The Royal Shakespeare Company's version of Hamlet, adapted by Lolita Chakrabarti and directed by Erica Wyman, has just opened at the Garrick Theatre in London, and I was lucky enough to talk with Maggie O'Farrell about both the novel and the play. Maggie O'Farrell, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's a joy to speak to you. Such a joy because I read your novel obviously a few years ago when it came out and enjoyed it very much, and I've enjoyed rereading it. And now it's a play, and soon it will be a film or a big screen adaptation of some sort. Yes, well, possibly the ink isn't actually on the contract yet for the film, but it's all seems to be in the way, and of course, it's all been delayed by the writer strikes and actor strikes. So fingers crossed, it will happen. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I think the whole industry is taking a bit. Of a slowdown because of that. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know the writer strikes ended, obviously, but I think it's going to be a while till everything's settled down and you know the dust settles. So yes, fingers crossed that it will all go ahead. But you never know with these things. Well, let's talk about one thing we do know is that the book was a winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020. Is out in paperback and has been universally or nearly universally should have been universally acclaimed. So let's talk about that story. That you tell because it's quite something to tell a fictionalized story about one of the world's most famous playwrights, and I'm fascinated to hear from you about how you navigated between the history, and in this case, of course, the literature, the plays, and your own fiction. Do you have rules for what you could make up? And given 
paucity of sources, how little we know of Shakespeare's biography up until a certain point, and certainly with regard to his family, were you led by what worked in storytelling terms more than anything? I think I always knew. I mean, it's funny. I had the idea for writing this book a long, long time before I actually wrote it. And I kept circling around it. And I'd studied English literature at university. So I was coming very much towards Shakespeare from the angle of someone who'd done it as a degree, you know, and studied all the plays and loved it, of course, and, you know, as a member of audience. But I always, for a really long time, been fascinated by the link between this dead son, because his one and only son, Hamlet, died at the age of 11, and the very, very similar echo of that name in, I think anyway, his best play. What does it mean for someone to take the name of his dead son and use it for a play and the main character and, of course, the ghost, not forgetting, because the ghost and the prince have the same name? Well, what does that mean? It has to be important. You know, I nobody would make that decision lightly. And of course, there is the source text, which they think was a Danish play called Amleth, which of course there's an echo in that name. But essentially, those names, Hamlet and Hamnet, are interchangeable in parish records of the time, because of course, spelling was a lot less stable in the 16th century. So it was very common. I mean, in many of Shakespeare's signatures, he spells his name differently in many of those. So it was very normal to have different iterations of the same name. But what does it mean? What is the significance of the name? So I always knew that I wanted to write about it, but I did sort of veer away from it. I think I wrote three other books instead of writing Hamlet. I kept thinking, no, I can't do it. And, but I was reading at the time a lot of works of scholarship, biography about Shakespeare. And it's strange, when I studied literature in the 90s, it was very much focused on the text and then meta theory about the text. There was absolutely nothing at all. We were not encouraged or we were actively discouraged to consider biography or life or any kind of other influences that might have been at play on his work. So actually, when I started researching for this book, I was coming completely, pretty much fresh to his biography. And there are these works of staggering scholarship written by a number of people who have focused on his life. And, you know, I was in a war, particularly as a novelist, on the unbelievable labour involved and the love involved in these tasks, you know, the hours and hours, weeks, years that must have been spent in archives, digging up letters and court documents. And I don't know, it's jaw dropping. But at the same time, I was fascinated by the gaps, as you said, in his story. There is so much about him we don't know, despite these incredible efforts of these scholars. So there was quite a lot at play when the novel was forming in my mind. There was the documentation about Shakespeare, which is pretty scant. And then the even fewer details that we know about Hamlet, the boy, and his wife, for example. And so there was the incredible scholarship that we know about him and the facts that we know about him. And then there was this kind of fictional mind of my own coming at it from fiction. And then, of course, there's the plays. So in a sense, it was this kind of tripartite triumvirate of influences at work on the book as I was beginning it. And was that a departure for you? Because I came to your work, at least through your modern literature, things like The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox and The Hand That First Held Mine. And so I was obviously completely thrilled when I found out you had written a book about the 16th century. It's like a perfect combination. And of course, since then, you've gone on to write The Marriage Portraits. You've stayed in this century, at least, if not the same country. But to come at that for the first time and to bring all those things together, did that feel like a departure? Did that feel like doing something new? And was it harder or easier? <laughs> yes, it does. But actually, in a sense, I really like to approach every book wanting to learn something new. The idea that I think with every novel or every book that you write, 
there's an enormous steep learning curve. You're learning a lot of factual stuff, which I did certainly with Hamnet and also the marriage portrait. Or you might be learning something technical. You might be trying out something very different. I wrote a book called This Must Be The Place. And I remember really consciously thinking, I need to learn about polyphony here. I need to learn about handling multiple voices, perhaps even within the same paragraph. So I really like to give myself a hurdle that I can clear during a book. But yes, no, you're absolutely right. With Hamlet, I was very aware that this was something very different. So it's not only his sort of set in history, but I think actually the thing that gave me the most vertigo was, of course, writing about Shakespeare. Delving back 400 years ago to the 16th century, that wasn't as daunting as fictionalizing Shakespeare. That was the thing I think that I kept stubbing my toe on in a sense. And I think, to be very honest, the main thing that stopped me writing it was a weird superstition because I have a son and two daughters, as the Shakespeare's did. And I couldn't write the book until I knew that my son was safely past the age of 11, which was a weird superstition. Not that there was a huge risk of him contracting the Black Death, as my Hamlet in the novel does, but you never know. You can't be too careful. Is that sense of vertigo why you chose to keep William Shakespeare himself unnamed? I think it was definitely part of it. I think there were a number of reasons why I decided to do away with his name. And I think it was partly a kind of vertigo. I remember when I was starting off making my first forays into writing the novel, it is quite (laughs) distracting or off-putting when you are trying to write a sentence along the lines of William Shakespeare came down the stairs and (laughs) sat down for breakfast. You know, I mean, even saying it, you're laughing, I'm laughing, it is ridiculous. And I thought, well, if I can't stay submerged in the fiction of this, I can't expect my readers to either. So it just seemed ridiculous. And then I made a tentative attempt to call him William, which felt really wrong. And then I tried Will, which seemed unbelievable chutzpah. So I just thought, okay, I'm not, I'm going to do away with it completely. But in a sense, it is a gesture to invite the reader to forget everything they think they know about him and look at him as a human being instead of a literary icon. And in a sense, the novel is very concerned with names and naming. What does it mean for this boy to have had the same name as the play that scholars think he went to write on four years after Hamlet died? And in a sense, his mother's name, we always know her as Anne Hathaway, which actually is odd because for most of her life, her surname was Shakespeare. And One of the documents I read was her father's will. So Richard Hathaway died a year before she married William. And in his will, he leaves her a very generous dowry. And he refers to her as my daughter, Agnes. And that hit me like a thunderbolt because I thought, wow, if anyone knows her name, surely it's going to be her father. And why is it we've been calling her Anne for all this time? And I think it's possible that it was pronounced Annis. So you can see why it might have been transcribed by a scribe as something different, or maybe it was shortened. But to me, it felt like a very interesting symbol of why we have misread her and misrepresented her for so long. So I wanted to call her by this name to signal to readers again that this is somebody different that you haven't yet met. You're not going to find the shrewish older woman who's lured a boy genius into marriage, which so many historians and scholars and writers of other books and screenplays have wanted to cast her as. Yeah, the the book is very much concerned with names. And of course, his name, William Shakespeare, has become detached from his name, the human and the literary behemoth. Shakespearean is an adjective that is bandied about. It applies to our language, our thinking, our time in history, you know, so many things. It's an adjective which we apply to so many aspects. So I wanted to say, we're forgetting about that. This is about the man. This is about the the young man, this is about the father, this is about the player, the actor, the landlord in some cases. I wanted readers to signal that this is not necessarily about him as the person we all think we know. 
And interestingly, seeing it from her perspective, from Anes or Agnes, we end up with a picture of Shakespeare that is not uncritical. And that's quite important as well, isn't it? Because it's saying he's a real man, he lived, he made mistakes, or he made choices that had costs. I think so. I mean, you know, so much has been made and so many interpretations, I think, are pinned upon him. It reminds me a little bit of that game that I used to play when I was a child at parties where we'd be blindfolded and invited to stick a tail on a donkey. And <laughs> I feel bad now because obviously I'm comparing Shakespeare to a donkey here, but bear with me. <laughs> and almost anything has been pinned on him. It's not as if I am critical of him, in a sense, to because he went to London to work. I mean, so much has been made of that. And so many people have sought, in a sense, to interpret that as a kind of divorce between him and his wife, which I think is odd because, I mean, in Jermaine Greer's very brilliant book about Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife, she makes it clear about how many men in Warwickshire and in Stratford-upon-Avon itself were going to London for work, as, of course, probably happens now. That is where the jobs were, and it wasn't really that unusual for the man of the household to go to the city to work as, as it isn't today. But I do think the idea that he went off to London and forgot about everybody back in Stockton-Laven is totally erroneous. Almost every penny he earned on the stage, I mean, even at the end of his career when he was an incredibly wealthy man, he was a very good businessman, unlike his father, he sent back to Stratford-upon-Avon. So he lived in very small lodgings right up until the point at which he retired from the stage and everything he sent back to Stratford, so he bought them a vast mansion for his wife and daughters to live in a year after Hamlet died, new place, which has since been knocked down. But he also bought many cottages and fields and land that he leased out. And that, to me, is very indicative of a very strong bond between him and Stratford. And of course, we have to remember that the playhouses were regularly shut down because of the plague. I think the capacity of the original globe was, I think it was 3,000 people, and if you imagine that on a semi-hot summer's day, I mean, it was like what we'd now call a viral hotspot, but obviously this was a bacterial hotspot. So as soon as there was a case of plague in London, which was very frequent, all the playhouses were shut down by the City of London. And at that point, I think Shakespeare and his company often went on tour around sort of counties around London, but if the plague was obviously widespread, he would go back to Stratford-on-Avon. So I do think there was a lot more sifting between the two places than some biographers will, will give it give them credit for. That's really interesting. And it absolutely makes sense, you know, where your treasure is, your heart is. If he's sending all his money back home and living on a pittance himself, that does speak volumes, doesn't it? What do we know about the real Anne or Annas? Very little. There are biographers that call her the wife-shaped void. I think her birth hasn't even been recorded because in shottery, Paris records weren't begun until a while after she was born. So in terms of documentation, we know when they were married and we know when her children were born and we know when Hamlet died and we know when she died. There is some documentary evidence that she ran quite a successful malting business from the back of the house in New Place. New Place was a huge house, beautiful house, and it had a vast amount of land at the back. It was very much in the centre of town, which you can see if you visit the birthplace trust houses. And I would say, please go and do that because it is an astonishing experience. There's a sort of museum and installation there, but you can see the extent of land. It was astonishing. So she ran this successful malting business from there. And because so many people seek to depict her as this kind of slightly embittered wife sitting alone in Stratford, crossly waiting for him to come back. But <laughs> I think that's nonsense. It's quite obvious to me that she was just 
getting on with her life and living in the town with her daughters and where her siblings were. And so, no, not a huge amount is known about her, but that hasn't stopped many people, which includes, as I said, historians, scholars, other writers of fiction and writers of Oscar-winning screenplays to depict her as this shrewish, illiterate peasant who lured this boy genius into marriage. And it's actually nothing short of misogyny. I don't know why we've only been ever been given this one narrative about her. And I've read very respected scholars saying things like he hated her, that he regretted his marriage, that he ran away to London to get away from her. And the most bizarre was that she was ugly, which is so odd. There is one single pencil sketch of her in existence, which was done 80 years after she died. Presumably, people assume it's from some kind of contemporary sketch. But in it, she's rather grey. She's rather serious face. She's quite a narrow face with high cheekbones. Weirdly, she looks remarkably like the actress Saoirse Ronan, which I think most of us can agree Saoirse Ronan is pretty far from ugly. I don't know where they're getting that from. But I think I originally conceived the book to be about fathers and sons. But actually what happened is that I became so enraged by the way she's been treated and how unfairly she's been treated and just where all this hatred and misogyny and vilification has just come out of the air towards her, that actually she became quite central to the book. Yes, she certainly felt very much central in the book and she does in the play as well. And one thing I wanted to ask you about is that she has in your book a mysterious connection to nature, a way of divining people's thoughts and fears and interiorities when she touches them. And I wondered what your inspiration was in giving her this supernatural ability. Was it a way of getting round the limits of female power at the time? I think that in terms of the characterization or the inspiration of the characterization for Agnes, it was partly going to Warwickshire and walking the land around the Hathaway farm. It was partly that and also the plays. So I was mentioning the kind of triumvirate of inspirations. And I did go back to the plays, actually, particularly for the female characters in the book, which are mostly Shakespeare's mother, his sister and his wife. Because their lives obviously are ones that have been written in water. There is no documentation, very little documentation about them. Obviously, there's an awful lot, particularly about his father, John Shakespeare, who tangled with the law. He seemed to have a rather interesting checkered career and he got into debt and he was in court several times for failing to turn up at church, etc. He was also the most interesting one I thought was the one where he was fined for dumping what they described as audio outside his house, which is a peculiar place to dump audio. I mean, imagine what it is if this is a kind of Tudor house and also somewhere where skins are prepared. It must have been pretty nasty audio. Anyway, but in terms of the women, their lives are pretty hidden and they are very much in the background and in the shadows. So in terms of trying to locate them in the novel, I felt I needed a lot of hands-on research. I wanted to get my hands literally dirty. So I found a recipe for Tudor bread, which I made several times because I wanted to understand the kind of labour involved in their lives. I and mean, if you think of Mary Shakespeare, so when William married at 18, she also had little tiny Edmund, who was a toddler in the house and several children in between. That's a big household and a lot of labour involved. You know, the idea of feeding all those children, clothing them and keeping them safe and healthy, not to mention healthy. And just the idea of running a household that large, multi-generational. And then, of course, William's wife comes in to live with them in the same household. And that is not insignificant. That is quite a task ahead. And I think also the place. So I did go back and look at the plays and I was particularly interested because I thought they must be there. They must be embedded 
those women because they were such a big influence on him. And it's very clear that he was very close to his sister, who actually was called Joan, but I renamed her because there's another character, Agnes's stepmother is Joan. So I called her Eliza in the novel. But in his will, he allowed her to carry on living in part of the house which he owned in Henley Street after his death, which implies to me that they were very close. She married a milliner and they lived there until they died. So clearly these were people who were important to him. So I did go back and look at the plays and certainly for Agnes, probably the most important scene, I think, for her was the madness of Ophelia. There's that very deeply upsetting scene where Ophelia hands out plants to people. And actually it's the scene written from a perspective of great knowledge because every single plant she hands to someone is a very specific cure for something, a flaw she perceives in their character. So he's not just randomly saying, this is a rue, this is comfrey. He knows exactly what those plants are for. And of course, that was the purview of the woman of the household. So I've always wondered whether you can see her influence in that scene. Of course, you know, we don't know. It's just speculation. But to me, it was something crucial because he wouldn't, I think, naturally know what those cures were. So he would have to ask an influential woman in his life and who else would it have been? And also, I was very interested in the idea of this kind of second sight and magic, or whatever you want to call it, superstition that runs in this kind of countercurrent to the religiosity of his plays. This was a society that was incredibly religious. And like his father, if you didn't turn up at church, you were fined. And in some cases, you could be sent to prison if you were a repeat offender. So you had to go to Protestant mass every Sunday. In some ways, it was an incredibly strict society. There were these huge sumptuary laws allowing you, depending on what your socioeconomic status was, you were allowed to eat certain foods which is a, such a peculiar idea. So in some ways, it was very rigid, but I'm really sure, particularly from reading his plays, that there is this large countercurrent of belief in, well, what else would you call it? I don't know, second sight, the superstitious, the supernatural, particularly in Macbeth, of course. So you can see it in Hamlet as well. You can see it in Julius Caesar. I mean, it's there wherever you want to see it. And I was just imagining the difference, particularly between the Hathaways and the Shakespeare's. The Shakespeare's were merchants from the town. The Hathaways were, her father was a yeoman sheep father from a really very small hamlet and how I wanted to kind of explore the contrast between that. Because of course, it's now basically one town, but in those days it was not. And just the idea of how different that might have been and how she might have been viewed by people from the town. But I think the other really key thing that fascinated me, this again goes back to something Jermaine Greer said. She said that biographers have been asking the wrong question because but hundreds of years, biographers have said, why did he marry her? Why did he, this absolute genius, marry this woman who was illiterate? What was he thinking? But actually, she says it should be the other way around. Why did she marry him? Because she was 26, which is actually a normal marriageable age for a woman. She was from a very respectable family. Her father was a yeoman. She had a good dowry. And actually, she married this penniless, tradeless boy from a family whose fortunes had taken a huge nosedive. His father had been high alderman, which is a bit like the mayor of Stratford, but the family had fallen into rack and ruin, really, and would have been embroiled in many scandals. John had been illegally trading wool. He owed lots of people money. At this point, the point where they married, William didn't have a job. So that fascinated me because I was thinking, what must Shakespeare have been like aged 18? We know now, of course, what he was capable of. We know what was inside him, but then nobody knew. And he hadn't seemed to be that interested in his father's business. He was probably just being his father's errand boy. Nobody really knows what he was up to, but certainly he didn't seem to be on any kind of career course. I mean, he must have been extraordinary. Imagine what it was like being his Greek tutor at 
grammar school or his rhetoric master. And I was just thinking, maybe she's the one who saw something in him. Maybe she had this ability, because it is unusual for a 26-year-old woman to marry an 18 I mean, I know she was pregnant, obviously, when they got married. But again, that wasn't really that unusual. About a third to a quarter of a bride went to the altar pregnant. Again, a lot of bit has been made about that. Biographers are very keen to criticise her for that, as if it was only her responsibility, which, of course, as we know, it takes two to create a pregnancy. And then they had this ritual of hand fasting, which is a bit like an engagement with benefits, shall we say. Anyway, so she was pregnant, but in the same, it doesn't really answer the question, why did she choose him? And so my answer in the novel is that she could see something about him. She saw that he had this astonishing, unprecedented potential. Also, a lot, again, has been made not only about her pregnancy, but about the fact she was illiterate. She probably was illiterate, and of course she was. Why would a daughter of a sheep farmer have been taught to read? But does it really need to be said that illiteracy doesn't necessarily mean stupidity? And of course, there are other forms of education and other forms of intelligence. And I think she must have had those. So I wanted to give her those. So she has this incredible insight and she has this education in healing and herbs. I think it's so interesting what different answers we get when we turn questions around and we look at history from a woman's point of view. Surprisingly, it completely refocuses the whole picture, doesn't it? Yeah. And this particular something I was interested in exploring with my novel, The Marriage Portrait, the different kind of layers of history. We think history is a kind of flat, one-dimensional thing, but of course it isn't. There are many interpretations and layers behind it. And in terms of the literacy, 5% of women were literate at the time, and the sense was really that if you couldn't read, you just needed to have someone who could. Like, if you can't drive today, you just need to know someone who can. You know William Shakespeare, you almost certainly don't need to read. (laughs) You've got someone there who can read to you. Yeah, it's true, actually. Yeah, His elder daughter was literate. Susanna was literate. But his younger daughter, Judith, was not. And actually, there's one example of Judith's signature, and it's a J, and it's upside down and back to front, which makes me wonder whether she was dyslexic. And that was perhaps why she didn't learn to read. And I also love the idea, and all parents or young people may take some sort of comfort from this, that at the age of 18, William Shakespeare just looks really rather rubbish as a glove maker. (laughs) I think it's very lucky for us that he was bad at glove making, though, wasn't it? Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. 
Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds, and the Paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. When you're writing about women in the 16th century, how do you handle the question of anachronism? How do you give them agency without making them into 21st century women? Well, I think that's a kind of wider concern for the whole novel, actually. I think it's something you really have to be very wary of when you're writing, and it's definitely something you have to keep at the forefront of your mind when you're going through it, you're redrafting and sifting through it at the last minute. And that includes everything from the way people speak, from metaphors, from objects in the scene. I mean, it's like just putting on a different pair of glasses and you think, I have to look at this always. I remember in one of the drafts of Hamlet, actually, I had a scene it's when Shakespeare's talking to his younger sister and I had described her, she was fiddling with the folds of her dress and putting them into concertina folds. And my editor wrote in the margin, concertinas weren't invented till the 19th century. There is that kind of thing that you have to fit it. But also I knew that I was absolutely not going to write in a kind of cod Shakespearean dialogue. As you can probably see on the Zoom call, my shoulders are going up because I just, the idea of doing some kind of fake dialogue is hideous. So I did have what I call the kind of prithy line, and I was absolutely not going to cross that. I was never going to say prithy. I was never going to say Syrah or Hail Fellow Well Met or anything like that. That was all against the rules. But I did have a kind of semantic rule that I was never going to use a word either in the prose or in the dialogue that didn't mean the same thing that it meant in the 16th century as it did today. So actually, when I was doing the final drafts, I had the OED next to me and I was going through it, checking certain words. And I did have one sentence where I described something as descending into a shambles. And then I realised that shambles in the 16th century meant to dice up a carcass. It was a kind of butchery term. So that had to go and I had to think of something else. But also in terms of the women, yes, absolutely. But I know that there's an enormous gulf between my life as a woman in the 21st century and Agnes's or Lucrezia's life in the 16th century. Absolutely. And I think you have to remember that. And certainly I came up against that writing about Lucrezia de' Medici, who was married at 15 to a 27-year-old man, and she was dead at 16. And it was very normal for girls to be married, unfortunately, at that age. But at the same time, I didn't want to impose too much of my 21st century revulsion at that. Because obviously, the life expectancy was, if you were lucky, so your early 40s. So I kept asking myself, is 15 different? Is 15 different to 15 now? But ultimately, I came down on the idea that actually it's really not. She's still 15. It's still too young. And it is repulsive. It is repugnant for a girl to be married off like that. The conclusion I came away with thinking about these women is that obviously the world changes all the time. The world today is completely unrecognisable to that of Agnes Hathaway or Lucrezia de' Medici. But at the same time, I don't believe that human hearts and minds 
have actually changed that much. I think it's still the same. And we can walk through the Uffizi Gallery and we can look at these marriage portraits of these young girls heading into marriage. And they look so meek and beautiful and accepting. But I don't for a minute think they were. I live with a 14-year-old girl. I can't even get her to wear a coat if it rains, let alone, you know, persuade her to marry a duke she's met. Not that I would do that, but the idea that a teenage girl is meek and accepting and say, yes, of course I married this duke that I've never met before, is ridiculous, as we all know, if any of us have ever met a teenage girl. There's so much in this. I mean, this is the question about writing about the past, studying the past. Are the people in the 16th century or wherever you're talking about, whenever you're talking about, different or are they the same as us? And of course, the answer is both. But I absolutely think that there are some helpful parallels to be drawn on, for example, physicality. So they wear completely different clothes. They have different practices around cleaning themselves or whatever. But a woman's pregnancy is a pregnancy, no matter which period you're in. And the toll that takes on a body is the same whatever period you're in, except it's probably just a bit worse then. <laughs> I mean, it may kill you, for example. So thinking about physical things is one. And then about emotions. I mean, you know, it's long been debunked, the idea that people in previous centuries didn't love their children, that they didn't mind when they died because they had so many, and you know, they were kind of replaceable. This ridiculous idea that floated around for a while. And at the heart of this novel is the death of a son, you know, so I wondered about how you engage with that sort of emotional processing of loss at several centuries removed as well. That was something else that enraged me, actually, I have to say, apart from the way Agnes slash Anne has been treated, yes. And I'm talking now about biographies that have been written fairly recently as well. And Hamnet has been lucky if he's had maybe two mentions in these enormous hundreds of pages, 500, 600 pages of books about Shakespeare, and they mention that he was born and he mentioned that he died. And often his death, as you say, is wrapped up in statistics about child mortality, which of course was horrifyingly high at the time. There was no shortage of things that could kill a child. I think you had a 50-50 chance of making it to your fifth birthday if you were born in the 16th century. But as you say, there's this kind of suspicion that it didn't really matter because so many people died. So I don't understand how the mechanics of how that's supposed to work emotionally. Is it because lots of children would die or Obviously, it's nonsense. We all know that. It doesn't even really need to be debated. But I have read a very respected biographer who said it's impossible to know whether or not Shakespeare grieved when Hamlet died. I actually did throw that book across the room because I thought this is such nonsense. And actually, you only have to look at the plays. You know, there's that absolutely heart-wrenching, almost impossible to read handful of lines in King John where Constance is talking about the death of her son. It was written, I think, approximately a year after Hamlet died. It kind of would bring you to your knees if you read it, even if you don't know that family had just lost a young boy. And also, you just have to look at the opening scenes of Hamlet to know that that whole play is underpinned by this incredible sense of loss, this huge undertow of grief. And of course, we don't need to call Vienna to realise what Shakespeare is doing with that play. The father is dead. The young son is alive. And the young son is desperately looking, desperately wanting to see a vision of his father, to have some kind of sense of communication. He's taking on the son's death and making his own. I wonder, sort of on the back of that, what that was like for you writing it. You mentioned that you were waiting for your son to pass the age of 11. And I'm often emotionally affected 
by my study of the past. And, you know, getting that line between your emotions and those of the people you write about is sometimes a bit of a challenge. How does that work for you? And how does it play back into your writing? I mean, I have to say the two central scenes in Hamlet where Hamlet dies and then the next scene is where his mother lays out his body, which would have happened. I think in a sense they were some of the hardest things I've ever written. Not really technically, just because of the place I had to visit in order to write them. You know, the engine behind this book was always was to prove to myself and readers that Hamlet's death was incredibly significant. It wasn't just this tiny blip that's almost a footnote in his father's story. It's hugely significant to them and also to us. I don't think that without Hamlet's very early untimely death, we would have Hamlet. And I don't think we would have Twelfth Night, which of course is about boy and girl twins who've been separated and... They both believe the other is dead. And then, of course, they are reunited, which is just so heartbreaking when you think about the real Hamlet and Judith and who exactly Shakespeare must have been thinking of. In a sense, for me, the purpose to write the book was always to dignify and magnify Hamlet's death and to say this child was born. He was important. We owe him so much. He was grieved. He was loved. He was not just a footnote in his father's story. So I wanted the death, in a sense, to be very affecting. And so I did find it very hard to write because inevitably, I always knew, that's why I slightly put off writing the book, that I would be thinking of my own children, my own son in particular. And actually, there is quite a lot of my son in Hamlet, not deliberately, it's just the way it's filtered through. And so actually, I couldn't write it in the house where I live with my children. I wrote it in a shed in the garden. And I don't mean a nice shed. It was a horrible kind of spidery potting shed that has actually since blown down in the gale. And I also had to write it in almost 10-minute bursts. I would write for 10 minutes. And then I would have to go out and walk around the garden because I felt so upset. I did feel upset and I cried and I would go in again and I'd do another 10 minutes and then I would come out. But in a way, I wanted it to be hard and I wanted it to feel hard because it wouldn't have been the right book if it hadn't have been difficult to write, certainly. At the end of your book, with no spoilers really, I think, but that we have a play called Hamlet and it seems like an enormous tribute by Shakespeare to his son. Why then does... His wife, Agnes, find it hurtful? Well, I think the question has always slightly haunted me since I found out about the name of his son. I was actually told it when I was 16 and studying the play at school, was how his wife felt. I don't think I would have been thrilled, actually, if my playwright husband had taken the name of our dead son and made him play. I mean, maybe she was happy. I don't know. This is just speculation on my part, but I don't think I would have been thrilled and so I was imagining, in a kind of fictional terms, how she might have felt. And obviously, in my novel, he doesn't tell her she finds out from possibly the worst person for her to find out from, without giving any spoilers. But yeah, I think it must have been an issue, I think, definitely, because, of course, he was her son as well. You know, that name was so significant to all of the family, wasn't it? So I was just wondering how the sisters and the mother would have felt about it. Because obviously it's not really known whether or not she ever saw any of his plays because the journey between Stratford-upon-Avon these days, you can do it in a train in a couple of hours. But then it was a really significant journey. It took possibly three or four days, three by horseback, four if you were walking. So nobody knows actually whether she saw his plays. But I just was imagining that if she had been unhappy about using the name, if she'd seen it, Maybe she wouldn't be so unhappy. Maybe she would realise what it was and what he'd done, that he was dignifying the death, that he was taking the death upon himself. He was taking the death upon the father. And in a sense, the act of the play is an act of grief and an act of love because he's letting the son live. He's letting the younger generation live instead. 
We're speaking now because the RSC's play of Hamnet has transferred from Stratford-upon-Avon, where I saw it, to the Garrick Theatre in London. The novel is one that is quite interior at times and it moves through time. You didn't adapt it for the stage, Lolita Chakrabarti did, but I wonder what considerations and challenges you imagine she might have faced in doing so. I didn't envy Lolita, I have to say. <laughs> yes, as you say, it wasn't necessarily a novel that lent itself immediately anyway to the stage. And also I wouldn't know how to construct a narrative of the play. I can do it on the page, but I wouldn't be able to do it for a theatre audience. So I was more than happy to hand it over to her. And she's done an amazing job, I think, of disassembling the novel and reassembling it in a kind of chronological form and in a way that a lot of the interior thoughts and emotions are expressed. So, you know, it's been an incredible experience, absolutely fascinating to watch. And Lolita was generous enough to share several drafts of her script with me. And I've been to see a number of rehearsals, both for Stratford. So, and it's been slightly rewritten and retweaked and recast and re-rehearsed for London. So I've seen some of the new London rehearsals. I haven't yet seen it. I'm actually seeing it tomorrow night for the first time, the full new version for London. So yes, it's been an astonishing experience and not something I ever expected. I still have a very strong memory of the phone call where my agent called me up. It was just a couple of years ago now and saying the Royal Shakespeare Company are asking <laughs> if they can make a play of Hamlet. And we had this kind of slightly overexcited, sort of astonished conversation. And then there was a long pause at the end of it. And my agent said, um, so do you want to say yes? And I said, oh, sorry, did I not say yes? Definitely. <laughs> I can't even say it was a dream come true because it was something that ever occurred to me was possible. But no, I was absolutely thrilled. And they've done an incredible job, as you'd expect, really. Every single thing is about it is so beautiful and so perfect. The music, the set, the costumes, the props, the actors, the staging, it's just fantastic. One thing is I was struck by certain elements coming to the fore in the theatre in a way that they didn't so much on the page. An example might be that it felt more like a story of parental abuse in the play than it did in the book. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but I wonder if it has changed your own perception of the book you wrote since you've seen it on stage. I don't think so. I think I went into it knowing and embracing the idea that the play would sit alongside the book rather than be a faithful version of it. It would have to be. It would have to be different because obviously it's a very different experience to be a reader of a novel and to be an audience of a play. So I was always quite open to the idea that this was going to be a version of the story and Lolita was adapting it and Erica Wyman was going to be directing it. But it is very odd. And when I've been to rehearsals, when I saw it in Stratford, certainly there were times when I felt sort of almost split into two that I would be watching it thinking, this is a good play. And then I'd have a sudden moment where I'd hear someone say a line of dialogue that I wrote and I think, oh God, it's from my book. It is strange. I slip in and out of being an audience and also the novelist as well. So, But I think that's fine. I think that's the way it should be. In other words, people not only need to read the book, but they also need to see the play. And they not only need to see the play, but they need to read the book. That's what we're saying. So we've got two products here, folks. And as you say, it may be we will see God willing, there will be a film at some point. And you are going to be a co-writer on that. Yes, so Chloe Zhao, who directed Nomadland, she is directing it and she and I are co-writing the script. I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say about the cast. (laughs) Probably nothing, probably Probably nothing. nothing. (laughs) But I just want to say that we have two very, very brilliant and exciting leads, possibly, hopefully, fingers crossed, penciled in. So, yeah, we'll see. It's going to be an exciting ride, I think. Well, we'll look forward to that as well. But meanwhile plenty for you to be doing folks 
books to read, place to see, get on it. Maggie O'Farrell, thank you so very much for taking the time to speak to me. It's my pleasure, Susanna. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, my producer, Rob Weinberg, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just The Tudors. 